nightmare terror from the tomb. An ancient curse comes to life to strangle the living and raise the dead. the horror and the terror of a story that began in ancient Egypt. Take Kato Bey! Take you! When Kato Bey, a son of Pharaoh, died in the desert and was covered in the shroud that bore the sacred power of life and death. says that death awaits all who disturb the resting place of Kato Bay. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the curse of the mummy's shroud. and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I have, once again, on the line from uh, many states away here in his own private COVID hell, we have (laughs) Mark Maddox. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) Uh, uh, The the standard Maddox noise that you've established now as your trademark. How sweet. I'm sorry. I pulled a groin muscle. But I'm fine. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> Your own groin or someone else's? <laughs> Don't get jealous, Rodney. Oh, Don't I can't. I, I would never be. I would never be jealous. All I all I do now is I picture a snapping turtle attached to your penis, and it just makes everything better. To everybody listening to the show, Rodney will pace later, going, "The goddamn Maddox, he pulled somebody else's groin." The goddamn Maddox, he pulled somebody else's groin. <laughs> Mark, Mark, Mark. I have to say that. <laughs> We, we only talk every few weeks, and it's already far too much. I think I've had enough of you already, so I'm just going to say... No, Good night. Da, 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 da. Um, tell, tell me something, though. Um, we were talking before we before we pressed record, you and I were talking a little bit about uh, the fact that uh, yet another Scream Factory 4 movie set from quote-unquote Universal got announced today, wow. and it was... Uh, it was a it was a lovely thing to learn about, even though one of the films is officially a Hammer movie. Yes, uh, Shadow That's, of the Cat. Well, yeah. Oh, I thought you know what's funny. I'm I'm kind of hurting right now. I mean, like my, my heart just kind of sunk Why? because because today when that four Universal set got announced from from Screen Factory slash Shout Factory, yeah, my Hammer Phantom of the Opera got announced today. Ah, that's where I was going next. Exactly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's, no, I don't mind that you jumped the gun. I was going to mention, though, that Shadow of the Cat was directed yeah. by John Gilling, who directed the movie we're talking about tonight. And it's funny because Shadow of the Cat, I have talked to people about. I get it. When I was a kid, I remember one, and you, you'll you know the name of this one, was Michael Sarazen. And it's called, it was a Track of the Cat or, or Eye of the Cat or something like oh, that. Oh, Track of the Cat. That was one of the movies that was produced by John Wayne's company, Batjack. Okay. In the and early 50s. Yeah. That was the one that... I, 50s? In the 50s? Uh, it's got well, Michael early, Sar- maybe it was early 60s. It's got Michael, yeah. it's got Michael Sarah's... I remember there was this, this suspense channel movie theater thing I saw in the early 70s, and they kept showing this Michael Sarah's in preview 
for this cat movie. And um, oh, okay. Well, wait a minute. The movie I'm thinking of is Track of the Cat from 1954. Okay. And it was a Bat Jack produ- production. Sure. But it's a Robert Mitchum film. Ah, uh, what's the one with Michael Sarazen? Between 65 and 70. And they and they talked about it, and so I get that mixed up with the Barbara Shelley movie. But I have had friends tell me you got to see this Barbara Shelley movie. I guess is it a Hammer film? Are you sure? Which one? Shadow of the Cat? Yeah, you're sure it's a you're sure it's a, a Hammer film. I know it's a Bar- Barbara Shelley's in it. I didn't- yeah, and Andre Andre Morel and John Gilling directed it. Yeah, it's a Hammer film. I mean, Universal. The reason they probably right. have rights to it is they is they distributed it over here the same way they did with a number of uh, Hammer films. So, okay, now the, the Michael Sarazen film you're thinking about has got to be Eye of the Cat from 1969. Okay, that's the one. That's the one I kept seeing previews for. So when people said Shadow of the Cat, I, I was thinking it was it. Okay, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you I really is this real? Okay, you're right. I, I stand corrected. I never knew that the the. The Shadow of the Cat was a Hammer film. The thing is, is that for a while, I mean, I bought some of those box sets that had those suspense things in it. They'd have like Paranoiac and yeah. and Scream of Fear and all that kind of stuff. And I thought they kind of rounded all that up. Now I'm seeing that there is one that didn't get done, Shadow of the Cat. Now I'm now I'm intrigued. Now I've got to now I've got to see it. Besides, well, I'm, ver- I'm very happy with that four set that uh, that four film set getting announced because good. they've got Cult of the Cobra in there. Uh, and uh, the the thing that wouldn't die now, I don't, I, the thing that wouldn't die, isn't exactly a classic, but it has a. I don't know. I just I really love uh, movies where there's a, a a living disembodied head. I'm just a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> Those things thrill me. I don't even want. Yeah, that's sick. You're just sick. <laughs> is Cult of the Cobra the one with Richard Long? Cult of the Cobra. I, I think. Yes. I, yes. yes. It is. Isn't it like military guys, and they kind of end up getting involved with this cult. Yeah. overseas or something. I, it's, God, it's, you know, I think the last time I saw that was like 1969, 1970. It was on television. It's been so long. You made mention of the fact that uh, also announced today was the fact that Scream Factory is be, it will be putting out Hammer's version of The Phantom of the Opera with Herbert Lom. And uh, you did a, uh, you did the, the cover art for the, the Blu-ray release. Right. If you order it from Scream Factory, uh, like directly from their their page, yeah. And you're one of the first 500 people. They do a large, I think it's like 24 inch tall poster, 24, 27 inch. I don't remember what it is, but anyway, like they've done with previous ones. I did it. I did the artwork, so I'm kind of like it makes me feel like weird to say. So it's a collector's item <laughs> because you know, I mean, I put my pants on one leg at a time. Or my dress, or whatever. But I, I mean, I, I, you're, I you're le- let's be honest, your leggings. I put on my leggings. I put on my tutu one leg at a time. <laughs> but but the thing is, the thing is, is that is that they do five hundred, and I'm going to tell everybody on the planet right now, I don't even get one. They do five hundred, and they I do not get a copy of the poster. Oh. So. So I don't know, maybe like some of the stuff we bought when we were little kids that's now got value, maybe they'll go up in value. But I will tell you this, any person that buys that poster brings it to to a convention or whatever, and I've had several people do it, be more than happy to sign it for you. But the first 500 copies bought from Shout Factory, they you get a poster with it of, of the a large version of the artwork. And I had a lot of fun doing this one too. I mean, um, when I was a kid, I don't know if you've seen these or not before, Rodney, but there was a, 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 a deck of cards that my parents bought my brother called Monster Old Maid. Have you ever seen those? 
it was something like, about that rings a bell, yeah. What it was is it was an old maid version with monsters. The old the old maid card card game. And they had stuff yeah. like uh, Bride of Frankenstein in there and Frankenstein. And all. But it was during the 60s, so they had those universal monsters in there. They had the Curse of the Werewolf, Werewolf. But but right next to it would be a Henry Hull, Werewolf of London, Werewolf. They had uh, the, the uh, Andre Mealy from Bride the Dracula was in there. Uh, that was the first time I ever saw that that incredible staring face, that one where she looks like a... a uh, a, a rabid poodle, but also <laughs> was the Herbert Long Phantom. So I always remember that Phantom, and he's and it's, it isn't necessarily my favorite Phantom, but I still love that Phantom, and I love that 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 kind of uh, handmade mask that he had. So I had a fun time doing the cover. Well, I have to say, I'm a I'm a fan of the the Hammer Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. I understand that a lot of people are not. <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, I uh, I really do like the film. I, I understand that uh, you know it it is famous for being the film that uh, was that almost starred Cary Grant. But at the same time, I can't fault the film for what it wasn't. I just like what's on the screen. And uh, no, it, I mean I still think my my favorite version of Phantom of the Opera is the 1925 film. But I still like the Hammer version too. I like I like well I, I have to say that I think the masterpiece is the Cheney version. But I still like the Claude Rains one because it's it's almost yeah, like a it's good. well it's a date night Dracula. it's a date night Dracula. I'm thinking of Franklin Jealous Dracula, which I always called the date night Dracula. You could go see that and take a date <laughs> yeah. who didn't like horror films, and she'd still go, well, that was pretty good. The same thing with the Claude Rains Phantom, and I'll say this for that version of the Phantom. The, the good guys in the film are probably the most likable out of all of my, out of all the Phantoms that I ever watched. Now, having said that, we, we fast forward to Terrence Fisher's Phantom of the Opera, and I still like it. I mean, I, I find there's things yeah. about it I really like. One thing that always cracks me up, though, is like when the woman is like passing out because he's trying to teach her how to do music or whatever, and she's, she starts to pass out and points over to his henchman, you know, like, get her some water, and he dunks this cup into this like muddy doo-doo pee-pee water and hands it back to me like throws it in her face to get wake her up i'm like dude dude you got any bottled water maybe you could you know anything but no i mean i i mean i i think that uh i to me uh, later phantom of the opera movies that try to get really gross and and all that kind of stuff are more disturbing and i'll say this too i'm a fan of the andrew lloyd weber musical uh in a lot of ways i've never i've never seen it i i there's just something about the idea that seems a little off to me and so i've never i've never gone out of my way to watch it well i've got a copy of it uh at um royal albert hall the 25th anniversary i've got the the album i've got the book on all the set uh, the sets and the costumes and everything like that and then uh, my daughter really got hooked on it. She loved the she loves the Phantom of the Opera. She she went crazy for Lon Chaney uh, Senior uh, when she was like five or five six years old, but she also went crazy for the the Phantom play. So I you know put some money together and then I took her to the Fox Theater in Atlanta to see it with uh, Linda and uh, and my son James and uh, it was great. Is I suspect that I wouldn't enjoy it. So I'm not going to spend the two plus hours going through it, and I may one get I may one day get a wild hair, or somebody may posit the idea in a certain way, and I may decide to do it. But 
I, I kind of have the suspicion that I won't come out of it with a positive overall feeling. So mm, I, I'm just going to uh, I will say this. Know? I think you would. I mean, I would think I think it would be better if you listen to the music a bit first so you're kind of up the speed on the songs. That's one thing, like, when you you go to a concert and you're not a fan of the band and you don't know any of their songs, so you're kind of like, yeah, it was pretty good. But you don't realize five years later when you're actually listening to their albums, like you know what? I wish I had known those songs. Yeah, yeah. When they, I've like, had that, exp- I've had that experience. I think many that's times the with thing bands, with, yeah. with 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 uh, the Phantom of the Opera. If you knew the songs already to at least enjoy a, a, a majority of it, I think you would enjoy it. I mean, I'm not, you know, I think you would. I think you'd enjoy it. Anyway. Well, I tell you what. Before we uh, before we go completely off the deep end here, let's go ahead and. St- Let's start talking about tonight's movie. This is our second Hammer film in a row. Have you noticed something? The first Hammer film was in the 50s. This Hammer film was in the 60s. That means what we have to do next is probably going to have to be a Hammer film from the 70s. 80-72. You want to? Yeah, it'd be fine. Well, I mean that or or one with nudity. (laughs) (laughs) So 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 Twins of Evil, you say? Yes. Well, we'll, dis- we'll discuss that. We'll discuss that later sure. on. But right and now, I already own the Blu-ray. I didn't have. To, I don't have to go run out and buy this one. Although I, I do own a DVD of this one. I ran out and got the uh, Blu-ray before we, before we decided to do this one. This is the film that I'm thinking of. Say the name of the film, so I know we're talking about the right. <laughs> you movie. are such a confused man. This is the Mummy Shroud from 1967. What? <laughs> oh my! He watched the wrong. Movie. No, 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 no. Are you serious? Yes. I, I thought this was. Um, I thought this was blood in the mummy stool. Yes, blood, blood in the mummy stool. Yes, yes, it's a proct- it's a proctology film. I've been waiting to see that. All it's day. a proctology film, of course. I always thought that was funny. Yeah, well, you and you know nobody else. I'll edit this out. Don't worry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm eating a pack of crackers while we. I talk. knew you were eating something. Too. You that are chewing on your own foot. I have no idea what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The mummy's shroud, yes. 1967. Mummy Tell me shroud. something. When did you, uh, hmm. how long ago did you first see this movie? I want to say, this goes back to that story that I think I told on your show before, Christmas, uh, in the mid, mid-1980s, mid 86, I believe it was, and my dad had just passed away, and my whole family, my mom had decided that she was going to go up to North Carolina with all the kids and go up to uh, North Carolina to be at my sister's house. And what at uh, movie studio is up there uh, in in North Carolina. The uh, the it was the Dillarana Studios yeah. for a long time. Anyway, we're supposed to go up that direction. I pulled my back out like severely. I mean, like I was only like twenty six years old, but I really, really, really messed up my back. And I had it worked on, and I had like I was I was laying on ice, like big buckets of ice, but I couldn't go. There's no way I could travel. So here it is Christmas. I'm at home by myself. My dad's just passed away. So it's like a pretty shitty Christmas. And a friend of mine, uh, Martin Allen, loaned me stacks of Hammer films I had never seen and made it a really good Christmas. I'll always owe him for that, you know, and uh, I'll make sure that he listens to this episode. But uh, and I think I've even told him to his face, but he loaned me. I had never seen the Quatermass Experiment. Uh, I I I had never seen Twins of Evil. I had never seen Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. There was stacks and stacks of the stuff that he had loaned me. I watched all this stuff for the first time. And I want to say The Mummy Shroud was probably one of them in that stack. So that was probably my first time. If not, 
it was the channel 17 from Atlanta Turner station before TCM that I saw, but it was all around that time when I, I had kind of gotten away from classic horror films, mostly because they didn't show universal where I lived, but then getting back into it, you know, in the, in the, in the late eighties and, and realizing how much I missed this stuff. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, is it as good as, uh, you know, the 50, 57 or 58, uh, Terrence Fisher? 59, 1959. Oh, 59 is, is oh, Terrence Fisher. I thought you meant the, I thought you were oh, aiming for their, their first mummy movie, 1959. No, I apologize. Although that's a great one too. You look at, um, Curse of Frankenstein to me is a good movie. I don't think it's, I don't think it's great. I think it's good. I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff in it that's memorable, but I think that the, the next year their Dracula film really is a classic. And I think the mummy is also, Oh yeah. I think, I think that the first one comes out and while it's very well done and everybody does great acting and all that kind of stuff, I look at it more of just a very, very, very well-made shocker. But as we call it in this country, horror of Dracula really is a great movie. I mean, it moves briskly. The characters are very well developed. It moves like Raiders of the Lost Ark almost when you think about it. And then you go to The Mummy, which is also very smooth. It's 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 very good. Terrence Fisher at his absolute best. So you know, you do that for a while, and then you you go into the into you know they they keep making these films, some successful, not as successful. Uh, the two faces of Dr. Jekyll and not so successful. Although I still, I still like, watch it. I still it. like that movie quite uh, a bit. I, I love seeing variations on that. I love seeing I variations too. on that story. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I, I think, I think that, uh, there's some honesty to it. I think there's imagery from that film that really sticks in my mind. I mean, uh, let's be honest, bad hammer hammer is better than a lot of other people's good stuff. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Very, yeah. And, yeah, I agree. And you go from, from that film and and a few others, uh, you know, six, more successful, not so successful. I personally think that Curse of the Werewolf, like financially, not so successful, is a masterpiece. I love oh, Curse of the Werewolf. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and okay, yeah, don't hear the werewolf to the last seven minutes. It's like okay, so what? But look at all this other really cool stuff that's happening. There's crazy crap going on in this film, and you get to that. Uh, and finally, we get to the – there's a, a section in the middle of the 60s where they start doing – and I think you had said this even before the show sort of started – like B-pictures. They, they they didn't quite have the same budget. They were like maybe uh, two-thirds or half the well, budget of some doing, of these other ones. They started um, kind of following the, the, the success of Psycho and doing – you know, the things we've talked about before, Nightmare and Paranoiac and, and things of that nature. But they were also trying to, I think they, they knew that they needed to not put all their eggs in one basket. So there were different kinds of productions that they were involved in. And, uh, so, you know, some of them successful, some of them not. But at the same time, that means there's a lot of variation to what they were what they were putting out in the 60s before, you know, the kind of like early 70s implosion of the British film industry and you know especially what Hammer had been famous for putting out it just became right. no longer something that they could really make a lot of money off of at all so the budgets the budgets continued to fall as they as they tried to keep their profit margins as high as they could and to be honest, I mean, the Mummy Shroud, the movie we we're talking about tonight, was the last movie that was uh, that was made. At uh, the at Bray Studios, it was the last production. It was. Yeah, it was the last one. Are you sure? Oh yeah, most assuredly. I thought it was. I thought it was like the Reptile or Plague of the Zombies was the last one. Okay, maybe. Okay, all right. You say that. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna defer to you. I. Anytime we start talking about history. Well, let's put, I, let's put it this way. I found it in two separate reference books. So. 
Okay. They can't all be wrong. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. My thing is, is that when I start saying that I know something about this history or that history, my brain has a tendency to sort of mishmash stuff together. Ah. And, uh, and, and so I finally go, you know what? I'm going to defer to the experts or to the people that just, especially the people that just researched it, because I know it was around that time period. Well, here's the, uh, here's the thing we were talking about when you first saw this film. I didn't see this movie until 20 years ago when Anchor Bay put it I, out I, here in the States. Yeah. It is just one that had never popped up and, and been, I'd never was been able their, to see it. That Was that their DVD or their VHS? Because um, they did it. I think I, I have a hard time remembering. But I remember going to Panama City, which is about an hour and a half, two hours from here, which, by the way, was where I was born. And we go for some reason, we go into the Panama City Mall. I walk into this movie store and I see something I have never seen. VHSs, one right after the other of, of Hammer films, like one <laughs> right after the other. And my date, I mean, I literally walk out of the mall with like a whole colossal stack under each arm of everything I can get my hand on. I mean, the only thing I needed, it's like that, 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 that scene in, in that one fantastic four comic where Reed Richards is bringing the luggage in and his arms is stretched around the luggage so he can get it all in at one, one fell. That was me walking out with all these hammer <laughs> films and my date who knew nothing about them. like, realized you were, she realized you were a shoplifter and you know, well, no, but what I, what I was like, baby, this is important to me, you know I mean? And, and literally like just filled up the damn back of the trunk with all these, um, uh, you know, hammer films from, um, what, what was the name of the company again? You just said it. I mean, anchor bag, right. Yeah, anchor bag. And then they, then they immediately went over to DVD and all that kind of stuff. And they were a godsend to us. I mean, they were, I mean, thank God for anchor bay at the time, you know, you oh know, yeah. I mean, if, if not for them, I mean, they're the reason that I was able to see not just the mummy shroud, but a number of hammer films for the first time. I mean, I had been, ta- yeah. I had been taping them off of uh, various cable channels for years yeah. at that point. Yeah. But when uh, anchor Bay started putting those things out like that, it was just, it was heaven sent because these movies that maybe I had heard about or read about, but never, you know, never popped up on television for whatever reason. It's just like, you know, they're just invisible to you at that point, unless some bootlegger has a print of it somewhere and then you pay way too much yeah. for it. It was, it was a godsend. And, and the uh, sheer joy of not just things like the mummy shroud, but just all those kind of non top tier, non super well-known hammer films. And some, and some too, they had Quatermass in the pit. They had uh, Dracula Prince of darkness was there. I mean, they had some real good ones too. You know, and the Viking Queen. You know. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question: Are you old enough to remember the CBS Late movie? I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to remember. Are you Are you old enough I to remember, remember it as that a thing? The, I don't remember it as an event that I that I really cared about. So I was I was too I was well, too, me, I was for, too young for that to be something that you know I kind of like set my set my calendar by or something. What What year did you graduate from high school? Eighty six. Okay, so they were still doing it up into the early eighties. But what it was is, I mean, I remember even in like seventy one, seventy two, uh, you know, uh, CBS Late Movie presents for the first time on national television, United States television. Frankenstein must be destroyed was one of the first ones I ever saw, and. You know, the CBS Late Movie did that, and then they did Dr. Fives, and then they did Count Yorga, and then they did Frogs, and they did Village of the Dam, and they did Forbidden Planet. They did. They even went back into the vaults. They pulled out stuff like the Black Scorpion. I mean, it was amazing if you did not have a horror host 
or some local guy that ran something on Saturday at noon or Saturday yeah. at like 10 o'clock at night, you had the CBS late movie, at least. Thank God for the CBS late movie, you know, because they were the way that we saw Hammer. I saw Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde on there. I saw so many things, Shockwaves. They actually played that on a Thursday night, which was kind of weird. Before they got into running television That's amazing shows. that you remember. It's amazing that you remember that they showed a particular movie on a Thursday night. I can't remember. When, well, let me day put it of the week way. I saw a fucking movie on. I would uh, never remember, I'll tell remember you that. Why. Because I finally got to go out on a date with the girl of my dreams in high school. And then we went out. We had a great time. And then I got home. It was 1130 at night. And Shockwaves was just coming on. And I remember the year or two earlier. I had seen it on at, at the theater the, the on the marquee. They had the poster for it. And so I remember coming home and going, oh, they're doing a monster movie on Thursday night. And then years later, I'm with my wife, who I'd just been married to for two weeks, down in South Florida. And we are at a hotel doing our annual business conference for the company. I work for Homes and Land Publishing Corporation. I leave. We come home. I get the Blu-ray to Shockwaves. I'm listening to it. And they said, that's... that's the Blu-ray? What? I mean, I'm sorry, the DVD for Shockwaves. Oh. And they say, oh, yeah, it was filmed at the hotel. The hotel we were at was where one of the hotels... Oh, yeah. ...of the two where Shockwaves was filmed. And it was... It had it had gone... It had gone... Uh, it went empty after World War II. They used it as a hospital. And that's why they could rent it so cheap, because it had been empty for years. And they brought in Peter Cushing, all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I said to my then-wife, I'm like... If I had known that Peter Cushing had been here, I would have gone and walked in the front of that hotel and got on the ground and kissed the floor like, you know, <laughs> like there was some holy, you know, it's like in a holy, uh, you know, uh, temple or something. Good Lord, I'm running down a bunch of rabbit holes. You got to stop me, dude. Okay, okay, okay. Let's let's wind this up and, and actually start talking about the mummy shroud because taking you down memory lane is it's like listening to an Alzheimer's patient, man. You're insane. Now, that was damn rude, <laughs> but damn true. <laughs> damn true. No, now, now let, let me tell you, it was a little interesting, wasn't it? Oh, oh it, it, it is interesting, but at the same now, time, I cannot, I, cannot, <laughs> I, cannot, I, cannot, I cannot get past my desire to make you shut the hell up. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm irritated with you because you don't understand the greatness of the CBS Late movie. I mean, you're just, you're just young enough to where I want to crack you upside your head. You're like just, I say, I, what I would remember is not the you know the the CBS mystery movie or any of those things what i would what i would remember is NBC the film Steven. itself those things those things just didn't factor but you got to understand you have we have to be grateful to CBS for having the balls to run every friday night a movie that had just left the theater a year or two earlier and was now playing it for the people that didn't get to go see it at the theater. I mean, I am so damn good. I am so in love with the CBS Late movie from that time period. And there's a hell of a lot of people that are listening to this podcast later. They're going, hell yeah, Maddox. We know exactly what you're talking about. That I can actually do an imitation of the CBS Late movie guy's voice. And my dogs have to hear it all the fucking time. Because I'm sitting here tonight on the CBS Late movie. Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, The Creeping Flesh. That's the way the guy used to do it. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, oh, I, shut I, I do up. remember that. I do remember <laughs> that that uh, those announcements like that because it not it wasn't only the way they introduced the show, but they, that, those were like the uh, the interstitial ads for it during the week as well. Yeah, I mean it was it was fun. I mean I actually know guys that want to do a CBS Late Movie T-shirt with the star <laughs> flying out at you and all. I know you don't understand. That's because you're a young whippersnapper. 
<laughs> yes, I'm so, this week, having turned 52, I feel so fucking young. <laughs> hey, it meant something to us, man. All right, I understand. Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about The Mummy's Shroud. First, let's talk uh, just a bit before we go into the plot synopsis. Uh, I, I love the cast. And, of course, before we even get started, I'm just going to say that for me, the standout in this is always going to be Michael Ripper. Because he has such a big, juicy role in this movie. Even though he's playing... He's beautifully playing a character that you just... You don't know... You have a lot of sympathy for... But at the same time, he's he's such a a milk toast character. He's such a a character who is just there to be a doormat for uh, uh, John Phillips' character, Stanley Preston. And we, it's uh, just a we um you and I need to get married. <laughs> oh, Linda, Linda, Linda just walked through the room. She said, "I heard that because <laughs> I said to my kids less than three hours ago, I said that poor guy, he's just a doormat." That's all he is. He I mean, is. Yeah. Michael Ripper, this is part of that budgetary cut thing that you're talking about. Michael Ripper is now elevated. It's like, you know, he is now, he was like, you know, you see him walking through, he's the barkeep or whatever in some film, or he's like the drunk, you know. Yeah. Or, the, and, or the staff and, sergeant. Or, or he's the staff whatever, sergeant. You know. Oh, kick your head in. In this film, they elevate him because of the budget. The budget is now, okay, we've got these people and all kinds of stuff, so let's give him more to do because he's within the budget. But I felt so sorry for the poor guy. I mean, he gets used from the beginning all the way through. and He's mistreated constantly. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, I mean, I told my kids, this is the point, if I was Michael Ripper and that guy told me, I'm not taking you away from the curse of the mummy. I want you to go buy me a ticket so I can leave and leave you here to die. I would have said, oh, now I feel like I need to tell you to fuck off. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this guy just treats him like shit, but he is so used to being namby-pamby, so milk toast yeah. that he takes it all the way up until the moment he dies. And he dies horribly. I yeah. forgot about that. I mean, I've seen the movie, I don't know, maybe five times before this, but it's been a little while. And the, you know, the mummy wraps him up in the darn uh, bed sheets and stuff or in the, in the, in the mosquito netting or whatever it is. And just literally throws him out. Throws the him out a window. And he smacks his head on the concrete and then falls in one of those little pools that they've got in the middle of the street. And there's this big old glop of blood coming out. And I'm like, damn, Michael Ripper, crap. He gets he gets killed hideously in this film. It's true. He does. Now I will say this. I, I don't think we're going to do this in in some kind of chronological. Way. We're going to talk about the movie and talk about the plot. And we're just going to jump around, right? Or what are we? Uh, well, 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 I tell you what. Uh, let's let's take a let's take a, a stab at going through this plot synopsis. It's br- it's pretty brief, but it'll it'll allow us to kind of talk about a bunch of different things. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood: beware the beat of the cloth wrapped feet. Beware the curse of the mummy's shroud. This is the leader of the British expedition who came in search of the tomb. (laughs) The rich and ruthless financier who believes money can bribe even the devil himself. This is the son who knows there is no escape. Someone or, or something is trying to destroy us. I believe it'll find us wherever we go. Wife and mother trapped by the mummy's shroud. Uh, I, I see death. 
This is Haiti, the crystal gazer, who sees into the past and the terrifying future. This is the girl who is doomed, cursed by the mummy's shroud. You mean I'm going to die? <laughs> In a few minutes from now. thousand years. Now he lives and breathes to avenge an ancient curse, to strangle the living, raise the dead, and prey upon human flesh. Okay, The Mummy Shroud. Uh, the movie set in 1920 and tells the story of a team of archaeologists who come across the lost tomb of the boy pharaoh Katube. The story begins with a, a fairly lengthy flashback. I think it's like the first like 15 minutes of the film, damn near. It's in ancient Egypt, and we see the story of how Prim, the manservant to Katube, uh, spirited away the boy when his father was killed in a palace coup and took him into the desert for protection. However, uh, during the journey, the boy dies and is buried. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but every time I see this movie, I get the same feeling, which is that I get the feeling, you know, because we have this voiceover during this whole opening sequence, I get the feeling that they shot this whole opening sequence to actually play with, you know, with dialogue to actually be the opening of the film and therefore it was probably going to be longer and play out with all the dialogue and everything. And at some point they decided, okay, we got to shorten this thing down or, mm. or whatever. And so they shorten it down and shorten it down and you can still see them delivering the dialogue in, in various and sundry scenes, but the voiceover is what you're hearing. It's almost as if they realized this is going to make the movie like, five to ten minutes too long if we actually show this whole thing this way. You know, that's always that's always one of the things that some people will point to and complain about a film is if, you know, if there's just a whole lot of voiceover or something like that, it just feels artificial or it feels... And I never feel that way, but I think this is a time when voiceover is being used to, uh, to fix a problem that they did not see before they actually made the movie. I think that the movie, the opening was already long enough. Yeah, yeah. And if they jammed that stuff in there, we'd be sitting there going, "Holy crap!" When the when the when when the opening title showed up, you know, there'd be people in the theater asleep or wonder or, or wondering, "Holy crap, is this the whole movie?" Yeah, What's I mean, it, you know what? It almost this, reminded this me of. Ancient, I mean, we had already talked about the fact that the budget of this movie was all already smaller, and. It, you know, once it gets into the actual meat of the film, once we get past the history lesson, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it goes right into Hammer. Low budgeter, smaller budget Hammer. But when you look at this opening, I almost felt like I was watching one of those 16 millimeter films in history <laughs> class. You know, and, and, you know, yes, yes, yes. Where, where, where you're waiting, you're waiting for the ping so that they go well, to the next slide. No, I mean, but the movies, I mean, I remember watching movies, historical movies, and they just, they just weren't as good as regular movies. I mean, we, we, well, they didn't have a budget. They're, yeah. They're yeah. Cheap. It's like, here, we're going to hear about Andrew Jackson and how great a president he was. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but there was always these kind of like guys that you saw like third or fourth tier in TV shows that were, that were the leads in these films. And I'm watching this. And, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm pretty certain you can of course tell me whether I'm wrong or not, 
that the guy who plays Prem, who is basically our main character from that, who moves into the modern world uh, in a way, is played by uh, Christopher Lee's stuntman, right? I mean, the guy who... Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, the Mummy is played by uh, Christopher Lee's stuntman. You're, th- you're thinking about... Uh... The Mummy is played by Eddie Powell. Eddie Powell, yeah. but isn't Eddie Powell also playing Prem in the opening of the show too? That's not. That's a different guy. No, uh, that's that, that's an actor. Yeah, it's a, that's an actor named Dicky okay. Owen, who uh, was in. Uh, he was in a few movies here and there. Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and uh, Hell's a City. Okay. Uh, he was in, he was in Zulu. He was a corporal in Zulu. And Once like again, that. that's why uh, I never ever say if you want me to try to do you a good picture from a film, I'm pretty good at it. But don't come to me for the history because I will fuck it up. That's just, <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you because I even told my kid, I got to walk back in there with my head in my hands and just, you know, look at my kids and just go, I was wrong. That wasn't Christopher Lee's stuntman at the beginning of the film. And they're going to go, Dad, you suck. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're your children. Shut up. They're right. So. I don't even want, I can always tell the big Rodney setup because it takes about an hour to get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, really, the man who 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 waxed rhapsodic about the CBS mis- was it the CBS mystery oh movie? Oh my Holy god, you hell. really are! Uh, you know what? That is some history that I know about that you don't know about. Yeah, I'm gonna get all the guys that you together. saw shockwaves on a freaking Thursday night. That's you, nuts. I told you why I remember it. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm gonna yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm gonna tell I you know. something. I don't think I'm going to make it to Wonder Fist this year because it's Andromeda strain right now. But I'm telling you that next year when we're at Wonder Fest, I'm going to get all the people that are uh-huh. closer to my age to hold your arms while I hit you in the stomach because they all remember <laughs> the CBS thing. Chris Herzog remembers it. Tim <laughs> Lucas remembers it. You know, if Joe Bosley shows up, he's going to remember it. You know, smack you around. Anyway, but I like you. Anyway. <laughs> just, just want to punch just, you yeah, repeatedly. That's what I like about you. Um, that's the that's the best part about me. The desire to abuse me is is the most natural. So this part guy who is not Christopher Lee stunt stunt double does this opening part. It looks like him, kinda. Uh, I wonder why they didn't just use Eddie Powell. I mean, I don't think the guy had the guy didn't do much. I mean, it was like a. He, he, it's funny. Well, I think there's, I think there's probably a good reason. I, who are supposed to be like the Egyptians, but they got this guy who looks like he's right in the middle of London from like the tailoring district or something that they put a little brown brown on him and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, it might've been better if they had just made him, you know, somebody from the middle East or something like that to, to, to make it more exotic. But uh, like you said, you know, you could be right. They had this whole thing where there originally was dialogue and they had these actors doing stuff well, I think it's clear because you can see and you can watch that sec- that whole section of the film at the beginning there, and you you see them delivering dialogue, and it's like okay, okay, so clearly they shot this to be a longer in, you know introduction to the film, and then realized they needed to shorten it. That's the only. Or what about this? Like like the Christopher Lee Mummy movie or the Boris Karloff Mummy movie? They do that section somewhere in the middle, and they decided to throw it onto the front. Maybe that's a maybe. I'm too, just yeah. guessing, you know. Because me and film history were so damn tight, you know. No, but um, so they do this, and let's get past this boring, you know. High oh well, the, part. the story that moves tonight. Yeah, the story that moves to nineteen twenty, yeah. and uh, we were introduced to the expedition led by uh, scientist Sir Basil Walden, who's uh, played by Andre Morel. 
Andre Morel is is somebody who didn't. To my mind, he made it. He made a number of Hammer films. Most uh, most famously for me, I think he he does a really good uh, Doctor Watson in uh, Hammer's Hound of yeah. the Baskervilles. I, I just right did there. a cover for that for Little Shop of Horrors, where I put him on there. Oh yeah, that's right. I just I just ordered my copy I'm, of that. It, that I'm pretty proud of that Shop cover. Here. I mean, I, I normally just do like do the painting part and let other people do all the lettering, all that kind of stuff. But this time I decided I was going to do the whole thing, all the design and all that kind of stuff. But Andre Morel had to go on there. He's Watson. He's very good in that. Uh, on television, he was the Quatermass in the uh, Quatermass in the Pit television show. Yep. Yep. Uh, he's in Plague of the Zombies. He is a, a, a nice, he's a former looking guy. Here's one thing that's unusual about this film, though. Why in the name of hell does he look younger in the Mummy movie than he does as Watson? That's what's weird. Movie magic, baby. No, I mean, he looks trimmer. He looks, he looks, he looks good. I mean, I know they put this, like, it, it looks like they almost put fake silver in his hair. It's like all of a sudden, but he looked older. He looked older in Hound of the Baskervilles. Then maybe he had maybe he was a little heavier, maybe he lost some weight or something like that. But and 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 he's the head of this scientific team in terms of he's not financially the head. We know the the weenie roast character is the <laughs> yeah. Is, well, the weird thing to me is I always forget when Andre Morel pops up and things like you know Cash on Demand or mm, any of these any of these Hammer films. I keep forgetting. I just watched that again the other day too. God, such a bless, he's good. I, I keep forgetting that where most people would know him from are things like uh, you know like big budget American movies like Bridge on the River Kwai and Ben Hur. I just I always yeah. forget that yeah. you know. That's where a lot of the, a lot of normal people would know him, and it's just uh, you know it's he, it's it's so bizarre to me that what I know him from is not Ten Rillington Place or you know Julius Caesar, but you know the Mummy Shroud. So. Well, but you got to admit too. I mean, his part in the films that we're talking about, he's got a lot bigger parts. So you you're you're right too. I mean, I don't I don't blame you for that. I certainly don't blame you for one of the best on-screen performances of Watson. I hated the, the, the Watson from the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, <laughs> Watson. I wanted to crack him upside his head because Watson, <laughs> Watson was supposed to be a, a, a fairly, you know, uh, well, he had to be somebody that Sherlock robust Holmes and handsome. Uh, well, he, he had to be somebody that he wouldn't have been insulted to be around. Oh, uh, so. I hated that. Watson. I hated that. And Andre Morel was an excellent Watson. Yes, he was. The Hammer film. It's weird when you watch Peter Cushing in that movie. It almost, because, I mean, within, around that time, I don't remember what Hammer, exact Hammer films were right at that time period. It's like, holy crap, Cushing, did you just come back from the war? Because you look like you lost 20 pounds. I mean, he looks (laughs) painfully thin as, as Holmes, but I think... Isn't that the same year as Brides of Dracula or something? I mean, it's so close to the same time, and yet he looks so thin in that. But you've got a a, a good, robust Watson out of Andre Morel. Well, he, he was born in uh, Andre Morel was was born in 1909. So when he made uh, Hound of the Baskervilles, he would be he would have been right about 50. Mm-hmm. So by the time he makes the Mummy Shroud, he's you know 56, 58, 56, 57. What years? What years the Mummy Shroud? Uh, 67. So we're talking oh, so a full eight years after the fact. So. But he looks good. I mean, I know he's got all that red makeup. I mean, I'm sitting there watching, looking at his sunburn at the beginning of the film, and I'm like, Jesus Christ. And my kids are like, we're actually over there sitting there. You know, it reminds me of the, the guy with the meteor in War of the Worlds. Man, you could fry eggs on that thing. I mean, he is so blood beat red. I'm like, holy crap. Well, uh, okay, well, hold on. You mentioned uh, that the, there's a businessman. 
uh, named Stanley Preston, played by John Phillips, right. who's the one who's been fronting the cash to do this entire uh, expedition into the desert. Right. The uh, he's he, he's an interesting character, but I have to say, uh, I mean, he, he's a he's a complete freaking jerk, of course. He is, a jerk. but his son, his son. Uh, played by David Buck, right. is on is part of the expedition, and his son is a stand up guy. His son is somebody gets that who, from the mom. Uh, yeah, yeah, he gets that from the mom and his school teachers. I mean, it's like the same thing. We were watching Time Bandits tonight with the kids, and like the the parents of the kid are like complete idiots, and they only care about what they're getting. The, but the kid's interest in history, so you can tell his teachers influenced more than his parents did. It's the same thing with this guy in the Mummy Shroud. He's a good guy. The mom, I really like. The, the woman great character. She really great is. Character and great she doesn't say anything, and yet she says so much. The husband goes, "There, you're judging me, aren't you? Am I judging you, Reginald, or whatever the hell his name is? You know." And, and it's like, <laughs> "Wow, this woman is doing a great job." I mean, and this guy's a complete dick. I mean, you said he was like whatever you called him. He's a dick. Um, he's a jerk. He's a he is, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's a cowardly jerk. He really is, and it's it's disturbing. To the degree which he lies about stuff, he makes up stuff to to puff himself up. Now, okay, so these guys have gone and found the remains of this boy king, and they bring it back. And this guy yeah. is lying about to to what extent, to what level he was involved, because he was basically a, a wuss through most of the adventure. He didn't even want to go out and find the expedition. Remember that he, he said, "Yeah, well, the only reason he went out at all." Was because the uh, newspaper guy kind of, was was kind of missing, and uh, you know, but the they, newspaper they, man embarrassed him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they go out. They, they find they find the expedition while at the same time they're finding. They oops, we we came across the tomb of the mummy, and they they go down and they unveil the, the boy king and all that stuff, and they find the shroud. What did you What did you think of uh, Roger Delgado as the uh, the Bedouin lunatic who never speaks a word of English and is one of the he's the, he's the current uh, Bedouin who's supposed to be guarding this tomb, and he's just a, a, a gibbering madman who, well, needless to say, as the film goes on, certainly, you know, <laughs> certainly completes his job one way or another, no matter how you look at it. But it, it's just a real shock to me to see Roger Delgado, who's actually pulling off being, you know, the, the, the makeup they have on him, even that stuff where they've blackened his teeth. Yeah. Uh, he looks great, and he, I mean, yeah. well, okay, so he doesn't look great. He looks like he's supposed to look, but it's a fantastic character. Uh, well, when you makeup say that he means costume. great, he's he is definitely doing a good job with his evil character. Yeah, I I love Roger Delgado, Doctor oh, Who, him on Doctor Who, uh-huh. the Master. He is still the single best person to ever play the Master. Nobody is as good as he is. I I I I, I know why John Pertwee quit after Delgado got killed in that cab accident, you know, I think that in this film, it's fun. Uh, I like seeing him in a few of the other hammer films that he's in. Um, what is one of them? The Stranglers of Bombay? Is that one of them? I think. Um, Oh, he's, yeah, he's in Stranglers of Bombay, the terror of the tongs. He's also in, um, He's in the Disney film in search of the castaways in 62. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I just recently, yeah, I just recently, uh, I've got a copy of that. I got to pull that out and look. I mean, it's been a while since I've watched it, but anyway, yes, he's great. I think that at first, when he kind of comes out, he's kind of like hammering on you—no pun intended—with the with his yelling and screaming. And at first, I'm like, "Whoa, man!" It's like, "What? What just happened?" And then he runs off. It's like he's protecting the this this uh, you know place that has been undisturbed for centuries. And then he kind of runs off. 
And between him and his, who's the woman? It's not his wife. Is his mom or something? Who's this woman that are missing the teeth? They kind of. Oh, yeah. She claims she claims to be his mother. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the two of them together, you know, they're they're great. I mean, they're great villains. You know, they, uh, you know, when they're not killing people, they're looking at the internet through their crystal ball. You know, checking things out, looking at Facebook and everything. But <laughs> but the rest of the time, they're stalking people and killing them using the shroud. It's like, you know, I used to make this joke with friends of mine. Once you start bumping people off one right after the other in a film, it's like, you know, mummy as hitman. I mean, it's like the mummy kind of gets sent out on them with the shroud uh, that they've stolen uh, to, to bump people off. But, um, yes, yeah, Delgado's great. I got to say this. The younger people in the film. Yeah, uh, you mean like uh, David Buck and uh, Maggie Kimberly as Claire? Yes. Well, I mean, I'm talking about especially the two guys. I will say this. Um, I think that I, I liked the, the them, but I think it was a little strange that the leading man wasn't a little bit more defined. I mean, he looked kind—he of, <laughs> kind of looks like a used car salesman with those white patent leather shoes and everything. <laughs> I didn't dislike him, but I felt I was a little shocked that given some of the leading men or at least the good, good guys that they have in the film, the young, the young, good guys, that he seemed a little bit like he would have been like second fiddle to another guy Um, that might once again get us to budget. Now I'm going to talk about Maggie Kimberly. Okay. Here's the unusual thing that happens with Hammer Films that drives people nuts. Hammer film, this is its own separate art. There's the film, and you ha- and I, I had to kind of like resolve this inside in my own head eventually to say, if you draw it with pencil, you draw with pencil. If you paint with oils, you paint with oils. If you're a photographer, you're a photographer. If you're a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker, right? Right. You are what you are. Maggie Kimberly had done a photo set with her and the mummy where she is in a very revealing night nightgown. Right. That are very famous pictures. And yes, to me, she looks spectacular. I'm like, oh my God, I want to watch that movie. I want to see the monster on the attack, the beautiful woman. I want to see her in all of her bosomy, voluptuous glory and all that kind of stuff. But what you find out when you go to see the film is that none of that is in there. No, no, yeah, those are just publicity shots. They have nothing to do with the film as shot, yeah. I know, but it doesn't look like it. They look like scenes from the film because yep. the mummy, because of the way they're done. And the same kind of stuff happens in Frankenstein Created Woman, and there are other films. The, the films with Udestens. Well, I mean, the, 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 worst, the worst offender to me, in Hammer's, in Hammer's days, the worst offender of all is uh, the early 70s when they had Christopher Lee in his full Dracula getup with this bevy of four or five completely naked women uh, reclining on the, the ground at his feet, you know, putting their hands up as if they're worshiping him. And it's, it's, it's a great photograph, but it's like, that's not in any movie. I mean, they're doing, no. this is all publicity stuff. And it's, if you went to see like a, Dracula 8072 and thought that was going to be in the movie, you're sorely disappointed. I'll tell you what, the one for me and a lot of other guys, um, although they kind of get close, but they, they fuzz it and everything else is Yuda Stensgard in Lust for a Vampire when she comes up out of that coffin yeah. with her bare breasts and the blood running down her face and all that kind of stuff. She's got the blood of this victim and everything like that. I mean, I think for a lot of guys, that is the quintessential over-the-top hammer image of what, uh, you know, the what what one, what one um, 
uh, hammer guy and uh, not hammer guy, but a, a, a newscaster in England said, Hammer known for blood and breasts. I mean, you look at this thing and you're sort of like, it's a weird duality. You've got a, a horrific image going on at the same time that a sexual image is going on. And you're like, I don't know which way to turn with this. This is bizarre. But still, it is something that the Maggie Kimberly photography, the Frankenstein created woman photography, the Dracula 8072 photography, and the Udestensgard, Lust for Vampire, and other films, other photography, and some, there's a few others that do that too. It's almost like you should round those up and put them in a book and say, this is the erotic photography art of Hammer by the photographers, because this stuff isn't in the movie, but it's still its own valid art. You know what I mean? But, oh, yeah, but, I but for yeah. the guy go, but going to see it at the, I, I think to me, the best thing about. In some ways, one of the best things about some of those films is the photography that was done for the publicity for that film. So you kind of go, okay, it's not the film, but at least the photographs exist. I get to see this this incredible, sexy, sexy, scary stuff, uh, you know. Um, you know, and and then there comes along the people that kind of predicted that's what you like. You know, it's like years ago, so I said, you know what, I'm not apologizing for that anymore. <laughs> Well, there, yeah, there's, I had, there's I no had, good reason to apologize for that. I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I like I like you to Stensgar coming up out of the well, grave. Here's what I'm shocked by. Where I don't, I don't where I thought you were going with this is that Maggie Kimberly is another one of those Hammer actresses. I mean, she was only ever in three movies, and, yeah. and it's well, she wasn't. I didn't. How good was she in the film? I well, mean, no, she no, was that, not that's just it. That's bad, just it. I'm not saying I'm not saying very, she's good or bad. I'm just saying that when you know, if you've watched the Mummy Shroud. All you need to really do is watch Witchfinder General, and you've watched two thirds of her film roles. Yeah. Well, I'll say this: I think she's uniquely beautiful. I like her incredibly sharp, angular features of her face and everything like that. Yeah. I think that she um, she's she seems like a newbie actress. She's sort of like doing the lines and all that kind of stuff. Is her performance great? No. Is it? Is it passable? Yes. I mean, the movie is not, well, once again, we come back to the budget of the film. I mean, this isn't Barbara Shelley getting the part. It's this this new actress. I think she's fantastic to look at. I think that she's also um, composed and everything like that. So given this movie, yes, she's fine. To me, I'm, I'm just very disappointed that, that the imagery that the photographer had the balls to to, to create that the director didn't look at what the photographer was doing and go, <laughs> Hey, maybe we could put some of that in the movie. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, let's do a scene instead of at the end of the film where she's there just reciting the words that make the mummy start to crumble. Let's have it that he attacks her in her boudoir in the evening. And that same scenario happens, but it's a little bit more sexy. Um, you know, 50 years from now, people are going to be playing this thing. And go, you know, Mark Maddox was a pig. He's a pervert. Well, you know, uh, people, if you're curious, if you one. need any, any kind of backup on this, let me just say, state right up front. He's a complete pervert. This is true. Shut up. <laughs> I I feel like like I we we got the bait and switch with the with the photographers. Well, and I you mean, know yeah, exactly you, you, what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But here's the thing. Did you see the photographs for this movie before you saw the film? I th I think I saw them roughly at the same time because I'd seen oh, okay. I had seen uh oh well, here's the thing. I knew by the time I finally saw this movie 20 years ago 
that uh, Hammer had a thing because of issues of uh, Little Shop of Horrors, I knew good and well that a lot of those cheesecake photographs that I would see in various magazines were uh-huh. not in the movies because I'd seen yeah. like Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and some of those, you know, there's some pretty, you know, semi-revealing shots of Barbara Shelley that were done for public as publicity photos for that film. Right. But, you know, there's nothing, you know, they're, they're, some of them are very posed. So, you know, they're publicity shots, but some of them were less posed. So if I had not seen the movie already, I would have felt as if that maybe it was a, did they cut that scene out or was there some kind of uh, censorship problem or something like that? Right. But by the time I saw this movie, I knew damn good and well that Hammer was, you know, kind of famous for all those kind of shots. And now you can go back and you can see all those cool publicity shots that, uh, you know, were pretty standard in the uh, th- the 30s and 40s that Universal was doing as well. All those cool posed shots when they were making the Wolfman with, uh, you know, with Lon Chaney and the Wolfman makeup up in a right. tr- up in a tree and leering down sure. at people and stuff like that. It's like. I don't know if I, I I don't feel like I mean that doesn't make me feel like they're bait and switch, but I, I kind of understand when uh, you're being led down the garden path a little bit about how much uh, sexiness is going to be in a movie. Um, maybe 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 that's well, a different well, problem. I don't know. Here's the unusual thing about it too. I mean, Hammer had already started getting sexy at the time, and really, what she does in those photographs is no. I mean, hell, a girl at the at the beach in a bikini is more revealing, but. It's just sort of like I was a little surprised given the PG rating of those photographs of her that even that wasn't in there. It's like, you know, you probably could have made a little bit more money if if, if, if it was, uh, you know, a little amped up. I'm not asking for R-rated nudity or anything like that. I'm not. I just felt like it looked like the photographs. Maybe it was the quality of the photographer because the photographer really had – Eddie Powell in that mummy costume kind of coming after her and she was like yelling and all that kind of stuff. And it really looked like part of the film. Maybe that's where some of their publicity photographs kind of, kind of throw you the off. St- you know st- what I mean? The staging is, is so, uh, so they enticing job. that it, yeah. Because, because I'll tell you this, a lot of, uh, if you look at a lot of hammer photographs, publicity photographs, they're almost exactly in line with the movie camera. So it almost looks like a frame of film was yeah. processed, which is kind of surprising. Normally a, 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 a studio photographer runs around and gets shots. Yes. Okay, here's a photograph of, of, of Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, and it happened one light, and it happened one night. But it's not the same shot or angle of anything that was actually in the film. It is a publicity photograph, and so you see that. But when you see the film, yes, that essence is in there, but not that shot. Hammer, a lot of times, it was weird. You would look at something and you go, "Man, you can almost line that up with a freeze frame of one image from the film." So I, I, have, anyway. I, have, a, I have a question for you because this this is this Mummy movie. It was the uh, it was the third Mummy movie that they produced, and, and they produced four "quote unquote" Mummy movies their entire the entire time. Hammer was a going concern. And uh, sure. the, the you know, of course nothing beats their 1959 film. I think it's possibly the greatest mummy movie ever made. But there, you know, everybody goes back and forth on uh, the rest of them. I have a lot of time yeah. for uh, this movie, but a lot of people do not rate it very highly. Uh, I, I think yeah. I think quite a bit of this movie, and one of the things that I like about it, one of the aspects of its story that I enjoy a lot is uh, is can, can, can kind of be wrapped up in the. The, the very smart way that this is both written into the script and played out on screen, which is uh, when they find the uh, the tomb, first of all, I love 
not to breeze too over this too quickly, but I'm going to. I really love the whole sequence in the tomb where they find the the body of the boy and the, with the shroud over. Yeah. I think that whole thing down is, in the sand. It, yeah, I think it's just absolutely. It was different. Yeah, it's different. It, it was different. It's a different yeah, way to sure. look at this. It's a different staging. It's it, it. It's so it's so interestingly well done with Andre Morel kind of uh, talking everybody through the whole process of what they're doing and why everything is laid out the way it is. It's really nice. But before they get in there, uh, he gets bitten by a snake. Now, he recovers, right. but then he, he has a relapse once they get back into Cairo. Now, uh, Stanley Preston, the, the asshole financier of this whole thing, he kind of takes advantage of this, and uh, the movie makes it clear without coming right out and saying it that he gets... Uh, Andre Morel's character, uh, Sir Basil Walden, committed to an insane asylum. Uh, And and it's very clear that uh, Paul Preston, the character played by David Buck, who's uh, Stanley Preston's son, figures that out instantly because uh, the son is an acolyte of Sir Basil Walden and has so much respect for him. That's the reason he was on this expedition to begin with. And I love the way that it's very clear what's being done, but it's being communicated in a very adult and intelligent way where things are being, things are not being said, but things are overly obvious if you're just watching the actors and if you're paying attention and it's, and it's not like the movie's trying to hide it or anything. It's, it's definitely a point that the movie wants to get across, but the way they chose to get it across is just one of those things that I really like about the way this movie plays. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You're, you're talking about the whole thing where the sun does realize, cause I mean, I got to admit in the times that I've seen it, I never really clearly connected that the dad did that to, Sir Basil Walton. Oh, yeah. To, he most, uh, he most uh, Andre Morel. Like later on, when his son uh, kind of whips that piece of information out and throws it on the table when he's accusing his father of something else, uh, his father's reaction to it is like he's just been like like he's just been slapped, and he doesn't he doesn't right. deny it because it's very clear from this from his son's tone that to deny it will just make him angrier with him. Well, I mean, for me, when I listen to it, and the, and the dad the dad does the kind of things that or the dad does the thing that liars, I guess, would do, or at least in some cases they would do, which is you can't talk to your father that yeah, way. Yeah, he tries you to know? change he tries like, to change the subject. Yeah. Because I'll tell you this right now, if my kids walk to me and go, you know, because my my brother, Mike Maddox, if my kids walked up and said to me, You tried to have Uncle Mike you had Uncle Mike committed and I if I heard them say that, you know, although Mike should be committed <laughs> I, I I would say the first thing that would come out of my mouth is that that is a effing lie. That is just, where the hell did you come if it was not true? You know what I mean? So this whole sort of like sub uh, getting around it, you shouldn't talk like your father to your father like that kind of thing. I'm like, oh, he really did kind of do yeah, it, didn't he? Yeah, he obviously did it. Or he would, he would deny it. He would de- yeah, he denied it. Well, I really out. hate the guy. As a matter of fact, I'll say this. I think given the fact that he did what he did in the film, I feel like his death is one of the easiest ones. He actually gets off easier than almost anybody else, including Michael Ripper. Yeah. Now, let's go to – I want to go over to a moment in the film or in the film that is my – the one that always stands out to me, that always sort of to me might be the pinnacle moment in the film. Okay. And that is Hammer's sense of of sadism, uh, of of stuff that as as you moved 
out of, I mean, probably one of the earliest things, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, with the guy hung upside down, even though he's dead, and they slash his throat, and it fills, fills up the, the coffin or whatever. Right. There was things where Hammer would do stuff that was, the only way I could describe it is like wicked, like wicked or sadistic. And where the mummy attacks the guy in, in his photography room, uh, in his dark room, and shatters the bottle of acid above him. That, to me, is the signature 10 seconds, 20, 30 seconds of the entire film. That's the best moment in the entire film, and the part that makes it a horror film. The rest of it is people being bumped off. I mean, you kind of get the impression Andre Morel gets his head crushed. Michael Ripper's probably the second most intense moment where he gets thrown out the window. But not only does the mummy is the mummy going to kill this guy, but he does it in pain. It's it's a painful death. It's almost a precursor to the Omen, where the mummy <clears throat> the the guy the guy sees the mummy coming through the door or he sees him reflected in the photography tray, throws a bottle of acid at the mummy. It doesn't do anything to the mummy. He's dead already. Right. The mummy throws the guy to the ground or whatever, and then grabs a bottle of acid and then literally crushes it towards it explodes apart and then shatters and drops down on the guy. And the guy is screaming, shrieking at the pain of acid burning all over his body. It's hit. Yeah, it's hit. Yeah. Well, that to me is, is, is that signifies the whole film. Other than looking at Maggie Kimberly and her uh, unique beauty, that is that that's one and two with me, or whichever way they're interchangeable. But to me, um, uh, I mean, when I watched it with my children today, um, they were kind of surprised by that for as old as the film was. I think they were expecting more off-screen. Yeah. And, and even though there's not blood, you don't see blood puckering up through the wounds in his skin and everything like that. It's still incredibly intense and pretty horrific. It's it's sadistic. This mummy is not only killing this guy, it's doing it with not only are you going to die, but you're going to suffer. Yeah, it's, it's a painful, painful died. death. And it plays out not completely on screen, but, it, but there's enough of it presented visually on the screen to really kind of earn Hammer that reputation that it had had ever since, you know, Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah, but I don't remember. I'm trying to think if that was one of the earliest moments in Hammer films where there was a sadistic moment. Violence and being attacked and being bitten and, and all that other kind of stuff is one thing. But when you actually go in and sort of say, not only are we going to do this, but it's going to be really horrible. I think that might be one of their earliest moments of like a sadistic yeah, death. I'm not sure. I mean, it may be, but I, I will say this, that Hammer, one of the problems that Hammer got into, if you want to consider it a problem, I don't know that I necessarily do, is that mm. once, but the thing you're talking about is that once you have the reputation that that is what some parts of the audience are paying to see, you kind of yeah. have to start finding new and interesting ways to not necessarily ramp up, but you've got to present something different. Because if you just do the same thing again, then you start to lose that audience. Also, too, you're trying to shock them a little bit, Precisely. too. I mean, that was a little little shocking, not that people would be running and screaming down the street. But it's still, I mean, even I'm, I'm talking to you about it now. You know how many horror films I've seen. You know how many decades I've watched horror films and how many decades I've watched R-rated horror yeah, films and stuff. But I still, to this day, look at that one and I'm, I'm impressed or maybe slightly repulsed. I don't know. It's like the two feelings are almost interchangeable where I look at it and go, man, that's, that's cold. Now, I want to like ask you something else real quick. Um, 
you, you, you mentioned two sequences in the movie or two things in the movie that uh, are kind of your takeaway, uh, the, 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 the things that you, you seem to take away from the movie. I got to say that to me, this movie has one of the single best destructions of a mummy in any film ever. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one too. That yeah. Ending I, is, yes. but, I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll explain it to the people. Spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Lots, lots of spoilers um, by this point, by the way, the, uh, you know, at the end of the film, the, the lady's in danger and she's told she's going to die. And they, she runs back to the, where the mummy sarcophagus is. And if she says the proper words, the mummy will stop. Well, what she's been told is the exact opposite. It's the thing that's going to revive the mummy to kill her from these evil Roger Delgado and his mom. But then the, 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 the Harry Hair shirt, our, 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 our hero of the film, runs in and says, no, no, you've got to say the death quote or whatever it is. And she starts to say that. Well, the mummy is on the attack. I mean, the mummy comes out, starts throwing the good guy around. Uh, our, our constable, uh, Egyptian constable, yeah. is there and he's shooting at it and it's putting holes through him. And the mummy is, uh, you know, the, the hero grabs an axe off of the wall and buries it in the mummy's shoulder that doesn't do anything. The mummy grabs the axe out of his shoulder and he's starting to wield it while Maggie Kimberly is reciting this thing. And so the mummy falls down to his knees. And at first, there's a couple of shots when the mummy's eyes are opening a couple of times that are almost kind of corny, but there's a few time, few moments where his eyes are open and staring where it kind of actually works for me. And this is the moment where he's like staring in yes. disbelief that something's going on. He drops to his knees and his hands come up and start to grab his clutch at his own head. Now, this is going to sound like insignificant to you. I'm going to say this about this mummy. There are some flaws in the costume. There's some things that I kind of look at and go, you know, like when he turns around, he's got the ass of a, like a 70 year old woman, <laughs> but, and it looks like it's like a, something he pulled on. There's not much wrapping, but I love the mummy's arms and hands. Oh yeah. 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 I love that the crisscross yeah. pattern. Uh -huh. um, it's funny because um, Abe and I are talking about a real famous illustrator from the 1910s, 20s, and 30s by the name of Franklin Booth. He was a great pen and ink illustrator, and he did this like, weird sort of crosshatch almost like that. And we were joking today when we were watching the film. I said, oh, my God, he's got Franklin Booth arms with this weird <laughs> – this weird crisscross pattern. But I think that's one of the coolest things about this mummy. Unfortunately, there's other parts about the costume that aren't as good, but still, I'll still rank it as a good mummy uh, because of this. But the arms reach up and they're, and every finger is individually wrapped really in a neat way. And it reaches up as she is reciting definitely the death thing for this mummy, this death curse or whatever toward the mummy. And grabs his head and it starts to crush apart and turn into dust. The head starts to decompose, fall apart, it's busting apart, and it busts down to the skull. And then the skull falls off. And, and there's like this chunk of spine. Yes. And, and, the, and the sticking ribs. up. Yeah, and the ribs are sticking up and it, and it starts to co collapse in. And then, you know, my kids are there analyzing it the way I would. And they said there's probably something in the floor because then you can see the chest start to kind of cave in towards the floor and all kind of stuff. And I said, that was pretty cool. And that's basically, you know, right at that moment, uh, other than when she puts the shroud across the boy king at the end, that the movie's over. Old movies used to end real fast. It's almost well, it's, like the it's the it's the joke I always make about Hammer movies: monster dead, movie over. So, 
Well, but but it was a lot of movies. I mean, look at the end of Good Lord. Look at the end of Vertigo. You know, he's there looking at the girl he might be able to fall back in love with, even though she was a criminal. The nun comes in. She falls out the window, splat. And then there's Jimmy Stewart looking out the window, and then he goes, the end. I'm like, holy crap. Oh, I know. That's one of the best gut punch endings Hitchcock ever oh. came up with. Yeah. Oh, my kids looked at me when I showed it to them years ago, and they looked at me, I feel so sorry for that man. Because like, yeah, Jimmy you Stewart should got feel... F. Yeah, you should. He got uh, he got effed, but it's and it's also like the joking ending of uh, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, where they stomp the living hell out of Kurt Russell's head, and then they high five, and it goes to the end. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's like that. But but the hammer film. I mean, I'm even amazed that she went over and put the shroud back on the kid. Normally, when it's like the mummies decompose, and it's like the end is across the across the decomposed uh, body. But putting yes, putting the shroud back is is I like to look at that as just the perfect grace note for them to end that on. I think that's another yeah. reason why I like the movie so much. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I agree with it. I mean, in fact, I'm saying even that extra 10 20 seconds is amazing for a film from that time period. The destruction of the mummy's real good. Uh, I would call this a solid uh, B picture. I mean, I kind of put it in with the whole, you know, uh plague of the zombies, um uh, the reptile. Well, I, I do too, and I, I have to say, I'm a big fan of John Gilling's uh, films. He made uh, he he made a number of movies over the years. I I, I looked up and did a, a while back. I did a lot of research on him just because uh, I kind of had to. Uh, this was a while back because the last thing this, the Mummy Shroud was like the last movie he made in England, and he kind of uh. retired from the British film industry after this. And he's actually said that he wasn't very pleased with the mummy shroud because the whole Egyptian thing he kind of felt had been done already by hammer and he didn't really like the idea that he was, he was having to make a mummy movie. I can't, yeah. I can't see it in the movie itself, but he, he, he did leave and retire after that. And so he went to live in Spain after that. And the last movie he made was in 1975. He took, he took over a script that was uh, being produced that had been written by Paul Nashi uh, was produced uh-huh. uh, was produced there in uh, Spain and it's it's very hard to see these days but if you can it's well worth your time uh, it's kind of fascinating because what Nashi was attempting to accomplish before he kind of got pushed away uh, pushed away from the production and ha- ended up not having anything to do with the finished film unfortunately is uh, he was kind of doing a, a variation on the same idea that Amando Diasorio was playing with when he did the Tombs of the Blind Dead film. So you have uh, uh. some kind of uh, creepy uh, Knights Templar as part of the story. Cross the Devil is one of those films that's really ripe for rediscovery because uh, I think that if it ever got a decent release, that a lot of people would really fall in love with it because it's a very well-made film. And I think that that shows just how good John Gilling was. You know, as much as, as, much as a huge Nashi fan as I am, I should be kind of upset that Nashi got pushed away from one of his from one of his scripts and uh, uh. didn't get didn't get to be uh, involved in the production of what turned out to be a really good movie uh, still uh, I, I I like the movie so much and I'm such a fan of John Gilling I mean this guy made uh, some of my favorite uh, lesser uh-huh. known hammer movies I mean we've already mentioned uh, the reptile and the plague of the zombies the two court right. uh, cornwall films that he made back to back. But yeah. uh, I'm also a huge fan of uh, lesser known and lesser thought of in general movies like uh, The Pirates of Blood River, uh, The Scarlet yeah. Blade, and even The uh, Brigand of Kandahar, which a lot of people just tend to shit on, but I think is really great. <laughs> uh, but also, I mean, in 1960, not he didn't make it for Hammer. It's kind of, it's apparently what got him the job of, of, of finally directing for Hammer. But he also, in 1960, made The Flesh and the Fiends with Peter Cushing and Donald Pleasance, which is just one of the most brutal 
versions of the Burke and Hare story. You know what? My brother, um, I have never seen that film. I know. It's a shame. You still have it? Do you still have it? The Flesh and the Fiends, I've never seen it. Oh, man. Man, you need to see it. It's good. My brother was talking about my brother is not nearly as knowledgeable of horror films as i am you know and yet he told me he saw it you know not too far back and he goes boy he goes that was something else and peter cushing is really good in it i'm like oh my god i felt like like you know i felt bad it's like i should have seen this before my punk ass brother (laughs) but uh i'm just kidding i love him yeah, I mean, I think Gilling, you know, to me is uh, has got a good reputation. I mean, uh, there's uh, stuff I've seen. I love. I want. I want to talk about one thing about about the um, uh, the Mummy movies, the Hammer Mummy movies. Okay, yeah. Okay, we got the first one. Okay, classic. Yeah, it's honestly, almost to the point. Honestly, like, little classic. Yes. Well, but it's almost to the point, like with with uh, Dracula fifty seven or fifty eight, whenever it came out, or as they call as we call it in this country, Horror of Dracula. That I've seen it so many times, I'm almost like, Ugh. you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, yeah, I love Raiders. I kind of know it backwards and forwards, yeah. I know. Well, I mean, I, it's like I love Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I've seen it so many times yeah. and loved it so intently that I burn out on it. It still is a great film. I mean, somebody who's never seen it, it's like, what should I watch? Watch that. Go watch that one. Hammer's Dracula. Hammer's Mummy. Okay. So let's take those, let's take the Mummy movie, that one, and, and say classic move it off to the side move it over to the left side of the table Agreed. now you've got now you've got the curse of the mummy's tomb the mummy shroud and blood from the mummy's tomb now a lot of people hate the curse of the mummy's tomb and i think it's actually a pretty damn good movie yeah i'm, I'm one of those that i don't think too much of it yeah. it's i'm bored i'm bored I, I I just don't care for it. I, I just find it that the mummy's like weird looking. Um, I don't like the whole trick thing where the the handsome loving guy is the bad. I mean, it's like, eh. Ah, but I but, really. But Mark, it has a head crushing mummy. Yeah, I know, but Come I'm on. still sort of looking at it, going. I still think it's part of that cinemascope period that they were doing, where they got enamored with what was huge like i mean and i'm not saying i dislike these movies i just don't love them two faces of dr jekyll and uh there's another one there too that's that big look that oh, hammered yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. and you're sort of looking and going like okay they moved up technologically but they still needed to keep that tightness of those earlier films and then we go from the that film uh, curse of the mummy's tomb which i don't care for to the the one in the middle Mummy Shroud, which I think is, um, is it a perfect film? Absolutely not. But it's still a fun little monster movie. I still love it. Yep. Put that one off to the side. And then you go to Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which really is just an Egyptian horror film. There ain't no mummy in it. Yeah, there's, you know there's, what I mean? yeah, there's no, if you go into this so looking for a bandaged mummy, that, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah. And and that's why I don't kind of call it a mummy movie. I call it a, a like an Egyptian curse, a Pharaoh's curse kind of a movie a movie about curses from ancient curse it just happens to be in egypt but i think that's a that's a damn good movie it's a damn it's a it's oh i do too and uh it's a uh it's a uh it's 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 different it's nervy it's sexy it's it's um, sexy yeah it's just it's just its own breed, but I think the fatal mistake for any person that sees the name Mummy and goes, "Well, ain't no goddamn Mummy in that one." Well, it's like okay, 
it's sort of like Brides of Dracula. There ain't no Dracula in there either. There's a bunch of brides, and there's a, a you know a guy who's kind of come in and take staked Dracula's well, here's claim. The, here's no the weird thing for me is I, Blood, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. I I really do like it. And it's, I think an adi- so. but it's an adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel, the the Jewel of Seven Stars. And now Jewel of Seven Stars right. has been adapted a couple of times, and I've seen a lot of people put Blood from the Mummy's Tomb down and say that really all it has going for it is Valerie Valerie Leone's tits, and I think that that's total BS. That is not true. Yeah, I but, don't agree but with that. It, and, it uh, also was it was it was also uh, adapted in 1980. Uh, did you ever see the the Awakening? I have oh, to I say, know. dude. I was there that weekend. Really? And and um, I watched it. The The one thing I remember about the movie is everybody's watching the film. It's got this kind of omen vibe going through it where, you know, if you were part of the curse or whatever, you're going to die and you're going to die. Talk about sadistic. I think they learned from Hammer's acid, acid scene. But about halfway through the film, in this packed movie theater, some guy fell asleep. <laughs> okay. And he started snoring and nobody was going to, you know, let's, let's let the guy sleep. You know, nobody's going to wake him up 30 minutes into it. The entire fricking movie theater is laughing their asses off because this guy is snoring like sawing wood <laughs> and it started. And so everybody has stopped paying attention to the film and is paying attention to this guy snoring. And the whole theater is howling with laughter. And this is the, the, the night it opened Friday night that the movie opened. Um, I remember it. I remember, um, you know, you know me, you know, I love Charles yeah, Heston. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, to me, well, here's my question. Here's are my you, question. You go, why don't you go ahead and say well, you like Here's the, the thing. I didn't like- used to like it. I saw it years ago. I think I saw it on VHS yeah. years and years ago. And I did not have good right. memories of it. I was like, ah, oh, it's a piece of crap. Well, a, a few years yeah. ago, like three or four, maybe even five years ago, I somehow yeah. got my hands on a uh, probably illegal version from somewhere. Oh no! Actually, wait a minute. No, that's not true. I think it's a, it's actually been put out on blue on uh, DVD over here uh, legally. At any rate, I, I, I decided to watch it again because this time I, I realized, oh, okay, well it was shot wide, and I know the last time I saw it was pan and scan. So let me give the movie another try. I have to say, I liked it when I rewatched it, and I did not like it. My initial my initial memory of it was that it was not good. But I wanted to rewatch it because I was just curious about it because, you know, it's Charlton Heston and Susanna York and it's, you know, let me give this thing another try. And I got to say, I went up in my estimation. I actually really enjoyed it. And that might that might happen with you as well. If you go back and rewatch a good copy of it, I don't know. Well, I mean, to me, um, I'm I'm not a fan of that that kind of a horror film. I'm not a fan of The Omen. I never did oh, like wow, them. Oh, really? I love those movies. I don't like them because it's like Tom and Jerry goes to hell. It's like, what do we do? We get about 10 guys sitting around a table, and we come up with interesting ways to to kill people, but in a kind of a, a, a mousetrap. Who was the name? The famous cartoonist back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s? You mean like uh, uh, Rube Goldberg. Rube Goldberg, ways of killing people. And it, and, and it, turned, it was like, like bad comedy to me like okay the lady's going to be walking her eyes are going to get pecked out and then she's going to walk in front of a truck it's like uh you know the well, only thing that's all, missing that was is in the sequel so let's not get ahead of ourselves 
Well, but still, I mean, even the, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, to me, the deaths in the first omen and the deaths in the second omen remind me of each other. Oh, well, yeah. And I, then, mean, I, I like, and then I like the second the film. Awakening. I like the second film a whole lot as well. So, yeah. I, well, and then I find I was the one, I mean, I was there opening night for the third one. And it was just sort of like, when are we going to get done with this Rube Goldberg, you know, death thing? It's like, okay, so this guy's going to do this. And then he's going to trip down the stairs. And then he's going to break his neck. But he's still alive. And then a wolf's going to come <laughs> and eat his asshole. And eat his asshole out. But he's still going to be alive. So he's going to suffer while the wolf's eating his and asshole he, out. And he, and oh, he left yeah, out talking about the fish hooks in the eyes. Come on, man. Come on, come on, come on. That's what I'm saying is is that is that it, it, it's a little it's a little something to me I you know and and so when I saw the awakening I said oh they're they're doing a, an omen rift where you know here's Susanna War- uh, York she's broken her neck uh, she's there laying and you're looking at that piece of glass and they show the piece of glass yeah. and then by, and then finally snaps off and goes through her throat and I'm like dude I mean this is Tom and Jerry it's Tom and Jerry but like negative Tom and Jerry. So for me, it's, well, this, I, this is I enjoy them, but I have another question for you. Did you, uh, those are the two adaptations of, of, uh, I think film versions. Uh, I think there may have been a, well, I, here's the thing. In, there was a, a television adaptation of, uh, Jewel of Seven Stars as well done in, uh, uh-huh. 1970 for the, the TV series, Mystery and Imagination. Is that British? Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. actually, I saw it a few years ago. I think, uh, I think a big set of those were put out in England and, uh, yeah. uh, actually, it's actually pretty good too. I mean, you know, the budget shows and you really do wish that they well, had taken, okay. you really do wish the time they had taken the time to, you know, to properly light the sets instead of just doing that, that really flat TV lighting that was pretty Was it look like Doctor Who or something? Or no, what? It, it, lo- mean, it looks like the way they would light, uh, soap, opera. soap operas at the time, which is just, you know, throw, yeah. throw light onto everything instead of work, you know, instead of trying to establish yeah, that's that. That's that. It's like that reminds me of that darn incredibly perfect joke in the Brady Bunch movie where the guy's outside talking to Mr. Brady, but it's like his head sticks inside the house and it's got that television 1960s lighting. Yeah. And you never knew there could be a joke made of that because it's <laughs> like you, you're in real lighting and it's like there's shadows going over your face. You know, your your nose is casting a shadow down to your lip. You know, uh, there's all this other kind of stuff. But but he sticks in the guy sticks his head inside the house or whatever and it's like even under the damn coffee table there's a little bit of light you know it's just brilliant but yeah i mean i know what you mean i you know i have no problem i I call it running it through the filter whatever filter you have to run it through if you're talking about a night a silent film you run it through the silent film filter if you're if you're talking about a 1930s horror film or whatever kind of film any kind of film you're running it through the 30s filter 40s 50s you know the television filter the videotape filter my personal favorite version of dr jekyll and mr hyde my personal favorite is the is the one that dan curtis did in the late 60s with jack polance that's a good that's a really that's a good one yeah it really is. I mean, to me, it's better than the than the Frederick March or the Spencer Tracy one. And uh, I'm a and, big fan and, of the Barrymore Silent, to be honest. No, no, no. I mean, I look when it comes down to it, I don't dislike any of them. I'm yeah, just saying yeah, that to either. me, the one that's got that warmth to me is the Jack Polance one. Um, uh, uh, you know, so 
it, it, it is, I mean, I don't have a problem with being able to do that. So, I mean, the television version of Jewel and the Seven Stars, I might really enjoy the heck I think, out I of it. I think you might. I, I'm, I'm bringing it up to recommend it to you. I think if you can find a copy sure. of it, I think you'd enjoy it. And there is one other thing I'd kind of like to recommend. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's another early uh, John Gilling film from uh, 1965. Uh, it wasn't done for Hammer. I think it was an independent British production called Nightcaller from Outer Space. Did you ever see it? Wait a minute. Why does that sound very familiar? Well, it stars John Saxon. <sighs> yeah, I should know more about this. You know what? I think I know the title, and I have not seen it. But go ahead and tell me about it. Well, it's uh, John Saxon plays a, a scientist who uh, is invest- investigating a meteorite in the British countryside. Uh, okay. This, uh, huh. They discover that it's an alien device from Ganymede. Okay. They capture an alien, take it to their lab, but it escapes. I think, uh, honestly, it's the perfect movie, not just for you, but I think you and you and uh, uh, your kids would really get a fucking kick out of it. It's a pretty damn good little movie. Okay, I'm writing it down right now. And I do know that I know the name. It yeah, just sounds I like, call it from outer know, space. Is, it sounds is a like, common, like, like it's, it's an uncommon name, huh? Sure. Well, I mean, it's one of those where the name almost threw me off because you think a nightcaller from outer space or whatever, and it's like a spaceship lands and an opera singer from another planet gets out and starts <laughs> barking off of the top of Mont Blanc. You know what I mean? Uh, so yes. No, I'm, I'm actually I'm writing it down now. Um, I think you get a kick out of it. It's a pretty good. It's I like, pretty good movie. And I like John Saxon. I love him, and uh, I'm one of those people that is unashamedly uh, loves uh, uh, Queen of Blood. Oh, so do I. I love Man. it. I mean, boy, is it low budget, but what the hell? Uh, it's fine, fine. So let's uh, let's wrap this up by asking, uh, like, okay, so last time you asked me on the scale of 1 to 10, what, what, what would you rate this film? What do you give The Mummy's Shroud? Beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. What do you give it on the 1 to 10 scale, sir? Um, to me, when you start getting down to, like, 5 or whatever you're actually in, you're going into a negative. Okay. Um, I think yeah. I've told you before that I don't think anything gets a 10. There is no such thing of a, as a film getting a 10. Um, I don't even think like, unless you did it on a curve, then you could have several, many films that got to a 10. But let's pretend there is no curve. Even Lawrence of Arabia or Citizen Kane or Casablanca, whatever. They don't, there's no 10. What do you give it? Okay. Jeez, you're beating it around the bush. Well, I'm trying to let people know the scale because this ain't Siskel and Eber with the thumbs up and thumbs down. <laughs> um, I'm going to give this. I'm going to give this. Damn, you know, tomorrow I'd wake up and say something different. Yeah, it's somewhere, somewhere in the six, seven, something like that. In other words, five is where you start to go. We're in, we're going towards the negative. This is definitely in the positive. Yeah, six or seven, somewhere in between, seven. You know, because when you get up to like nine and a half, you get like two. Yeah, for me, classics. for me, this is a, a seven as well. Because for me, the their fifty nine mummy, the fifty nine mummy film from Hammer, that's a nine. I mean, that's a that's a great movie. I mean, that's just a, an incredible movie. And uh, this is a couple of steps down from that, essentially. Oh but yeah, still a solid film. Yeah, and like I said, uh, to me, uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, I don't really even classify as a mummy film. The other one I just don't like. I give that like a four, the, <sighs> the other one. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i watched it again <laughs> and again, and I'm sort of like, eh, it just ain't doing it for me. Something, something's missing here. Something's really missing. I would um, be curious to have you go back and revisit The Awakening, though, see if you have the same I would rewatch it because Chuck yeah. is in it. Chuck Hess is yeah. in it. Um and like I, I say, once, seeing something because I guarantee you've probably never seen it widescreen, which is, I mean, I mean, if you saw it in the theater and you were yeah, distracted by the someone theater. sleeping, 
Well, I still watched it, but I, all I remember is just people laughing and nobody had the heart to wake him up and it just made it more funny. I mean, yeah. people were laughing their asses off. But to <laughs> me, um, and I think I've seen it, I, you got to realize, I mean, some of these things, you say, how many times you see it? I've seen it like five, six, seven times. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I saw it five, six, seven times, but I saw it five, six, seven times in the 80s and I haven't seen yeah. it since. Uh, I've got, you know, I mean, I got a, a buddy and I are talking about Buckaroo Bonsai. I saw Buckaroo Bonsai 10, 15 times in the 80s. I haven't seen it since. So well, I saw it. I, I rewatched it about 15 but, but, years but, ago when that when that special edition DVD came out, but I haven't rewatched it since I bought the Blu-ray, which which is sad to say. But 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 you see what I'm saying is that yes, I could have seen. I mean, there's some movies I saw 20, 30, 40, 50 times, and then there's been a, you know a, a two, three decades, and I've got to go back yeah. and revisit them. I mean, even movies that I consider my favorite films. Uh, one of them I watched finally this last year with the kids, uh, Chariots of Fire. I must have seen that 20, 30, maybe 40 times back in the 80s and 90s. And then I said, man, it's been so long since I've seen it. It's almost in some ways like watching a new movie. So, uh, you know, um, but was this movie good? Yeah, I would I would give this the ones where you're not sure what to call it. To me, it was a solid popcorn muncher or as they call it, a solid pot boiler. It does its job. I enjoyed it. I will watch it again. I'm glad I bought the Blu-ray from uh, Shout Factory and I'll watch it again. I like the movie quite a bit. You know? For me, so. for me, it is a, a solid little 1960s Hammer horror film. It's a good monster movie. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it goes right in there with uh, Reptile and Plague of the Zombies. Um, I would say that it went, somebody also threw out uh, the Gorgon. I put the Gorgon maybe just a teeny tiny bit above that. Yeah, with, I would. I would with, too. With Terrence Fisher's directing, although the little snakes in the woman's hair, while she looks fantastic, the snakes are kind of sitting there popping around like. Like uh, you know, like they're in Jiffy Pop or something. <laughs> uh, but 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 she makes up for it, and the overall look and feel of the film. But it, it it's got the you know what I'm saying. All four oh, of this film have that sort of like monster issue, small town. You know how are we going to resolve this kind of thing? And they work. All four of them work. You know, and that's that's a kind of story that I really I have a lot of time for. I really enjoy those kind of things. Yeah, uh, me too. Mark, before we go, uh, have you got any uh, anything else that you can uh, legally talk about before uh, before we let you go? Any any uh, projects that are coming out? Any uh, covers that you can discuss? Um, well, Little Shop with its uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, yeah. Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah, you've got my checklist. Um, <laughs> there are. Well, there, let me put it this way. There's some of it I just am not going to talk about because okay, I ain't going to. You can, you can vague it up. Of, you can vague it up. It's fine. There is one that's quite vague. I mean, I've got some more covers uh, coming in the future from Infinity Magazine, the British. It's kind of like uh, the, the uh, yeah, yeah. British equivalent of Starlog. And uh, we, we, we've been talking back and forth. I've got some real fun ones coming from, from that. Um, he's kind of... You know, we've talked about what articles have been written, what haven't been, and so we're kind of like running from film to film to film or television show to television show. And he's like, yeah, if you want to do that, we've definitely got somebody that can write something on that. So it might involve a little Ray Harryhausen, Ooh. might involve a little Jerry Anderson, Ooh. might involve a little – a little uh, possibly in the future involve a little bit of uh, 1960s uh, uh, television show with Van Williams and a famous uh, – 
uh, you know, martial artist. Uh, martial artist, maybe at this point, but you know, that's that, that all that stuff is being talked about, and it's all kind of like, yeah, let's do it. Um, I've got to get at it in between jobs that are definitely solid where people walk up and go, here's a check. Give me what I want, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I go, yes, sir. Well, uh, listen, we'll, uh, we'll talk off, uh, off mic about what, uh, what we'll talk about next for the podcast, but I just wanted to, once again, thank you for, uh, coming back on the show, my friend. I appreciate it. You know, during these tough times, you know, it's good to talk to friends, you know, when you're trapped in your house, like, you know, like Robert Neville. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can't even go down to the local movie theater and put on Woodstock. So, you know, it's fun <laughs> to get out here with a good buddy of mine and, and just jaw about this kind of stuff. I mean, this kind of keeps you from losing your mind. Uh, yes. And I think we all need uh, whatever distractions we can get. And I think that uh, if we can put a little smile on each other's face, so much the better. No, you don't do that. But yeah, hey. okay. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks for coming back on the show. Stay, stay safe that. down there, bud. All right, you too. Well, where's the body? All right. I want you all to understand what happened. Normally, as you know, the, the tomb of a pharaoh bears the necropolis seal, and the tomb itself is very much more elaborate than this. Now, theory is merging with fact. The slave Prem buried his master, sealed the tomb with rock the best he could do in the circumstances. And look, is it a body or isn't there? That's all I'm interested in. If you will contain your impatience, Mr. Preston, until I've finished, I think you'll find them for this. In this canopic chest, we shall undoubtedly find the, the urns containing the viscera of the young pharaoh. Viscera? Uh, the heart and intestines. Oh, Harry, is your camera ready? Oh, is there, sir? I think we are going to find one of the earliest forms of mummification. Pharaoh was entombed, a keeper or guard was appointed. This position was handed down from generation to generation. Perhaps in this instance the keeper was the madman we met in the cavern. Possibly. Some of the guards were dedicated men, but many of them were villains who rifled the tombs that they were supposed to guard. Ashmedali may have discovered the tomb himself or the secret may have been passed down to him by his family but whatever he thinks he certainly seems to regard himself as the keeper of the tomb I am Dr. Lee Cushing welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com 
or visit sdsullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hello everyone, Rod jumping back in here at the end once again to remind you that uh, if you want to reach the show, let us know what you think about this episode or any of the past hundred or so episodes of the show. We can be reached at thebloodypit at gmail.com. That's the mailing address for the podcast. Also, we can be reached over on the Facebook page where we get uh, messages from people all over the world, which is always nice, especially when they correct us on some things like uh, letting us know about the word Monaco and how it relates to an actual Italian city instead of a different country. I love learning these things, but uh, you never know what you're going to miss when you don't know a foreign language. Mark Maddox and I, of course, talked a little bit after we were done recording this one and have settled on a 1970s Hammer film for our next outing on the show together in about a month. Uh, We bypassed uh, the Dracula films. We thought about that a little bit, but... We still wanted to stay in the vampire mode because, I don't know, it felt right. So uh, next time Mr. Maddox and I sit down to talk, we'll be discussing Twins of Evil in case you want to play along and uh, watch the film before the podcast comes out. So Twins of Evil, Quadruplets of Joy, whatever you want to call it, uh, that will be the next time Mr. Maddox and I speak. But between... Now and then, of course, a couple more episodes, a silent movie, uh, more 1940s Universal stuff from Troy and myself. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and uh, we will talk to you again soon.